you can't foresee what's going to happen in the world. So if you got the right people, they're going to help you navigate that. Practice empathy. Empathy is a critical business skill set that we all should be thinking about as business people all the time. Put yourself in the shoes of the other person. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Tom Pritzker. Tom is an accomplished entrepreneur and business builder, a distinguished scholar with a focus on culture and education, an innovative philanthropist, and a man who travels the globe as a business statesman. Tom is a change agent and a difference maker who strives to make everything he touches work better. He is chairman and CEO of the Prisker Organization, the family's historical merchant bank. Their business model is a bit different. They acquire middle market businesses, become a thought partner with management teams, and have a hold period that can stretch for decades. Tom is also executive chairman of Hyatt Hotels Corporation and has also founded significant companies in the fields of container leasing, biotech, and healthcare. Outside of business, Tom is active in a number of other areas. He is chairman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, chairman of the Hyatt Foundation that sponsors the Pritzker Architecture Prize, and former chair of the Art Institute of Chicago. He is an honorary professor of history at Sichuan University in China, holds an honorary doctorate from Tsinghua University in Beijing, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is also deeply involved with the University of Chicago. Tom, welcome to the podcast. You've led a busy, complex, and integrated life, which operates a bit like a flywheel, bringing together many disparate activities so that they support each other. We got a lot to cover today, so let's get started. First, Introduce us to your family. At a time when so many are questioning the value of immigration, your family history is a remarkable story of immigrant to innovator across three generations. When I was beginning my career in banking in Chicago, your father, Jay, was a particularly able innovator and business builder. Talk about your family and what it was like working with your dad. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Hank, for having me on your podcast and for the very kind introduction. Yes, I feel like I've managed to put together a integrated life. I think the organizing theme for me is that I want to make a difference. And what I think about is that I've managed to open up a number of different avenues in which I can make a difference. And they one does inform the other in a rather elegant fashion. I have interests, as you know, in business, in science, in national security, and in culture. I guess I should add the oddest one is I have an interest and a lot of knowledge around 11th century Western Himalayan history. If you need to know about that, call me. If you need to know about 13th century, I have to send you somewhere else. I don't really bucketize these various interests because I do find that they cross-fertilize each other and each presents an opportunity to move the needle. So as to the history of my family, I think it's the right way to start because I think we're all a product of our histories. And I know 
I'm very much a product of my history. I would start with my great-grandfather, Nicholas, who you wouldn't have known. Nicholas came over in 1881, and he was a street urchin, literally lived under a bridge on LaSalle Street in the dead of winter and put cardboard under his shirt in order to stay warm. And his family would meet at a certain address on Saturday so they could stay connected. His mother came about a year later, and as soon as they could afford to uh, rent a basement apartment, she had created the Nickel Society. And the Nickel Society was everybody in the family had to give a nickel a week into charity because she said, we have to help people who are less fortunate than we are. Now, imagine these are people who are living on the streets and philanthropy became embedded in the family when they had no money whatsoever. Nicholas had three sons. A.N., who you probably knew, was the middle one. And A.N. was a successful lawyer and then became a successful local real estate entrepreneur. My dad then came. My dad was the oldest. And dad, in my way of thinking about it, was really the progenitor of today's private equity. And what he was able to do, and he was doing this in the 40s, was he was doing le- what we call leverage buyouts of companies. But he had a slightly different angle because there were no LPs and taxes were 80%. So if you're doing it with your own money and taxes are 80%, you're never going to sell. And the result of that is the keys to the kingdom are not financial engineering. They are your management team, your products, and your customers. And so we had very long hold periods and very much aligned with our management teams. And that was sort of what I grew up with at the dinner table. As you mentioned, I had a really unique relationship with my dad. We, he was my dad. He was my partner. He was my best friend. We officed next to each other. And basically, even though we had two offices, we spent all day in either his office or my office. We played tennis together. We had lunch together. It was really a wonderful relationship. And so that sort of, that would be the background from which I came. And what a background it is. Now, after graduating from Claremont Men's College, you got an MBA and a law degree from the University of Chicago. What were the biggest lessons from your early academic experience? Uh, I'm not sure anybody would call it an academic experience. I'd start that way. So my main thrust was I wanted to get into business. That's what I was passionate about. So I went to Claremont for two and a half years, and I'm sitting at lunch with the dean of faculty. And I said, this is crazy. Why do you make people go to four years of college if they're going to go to law school? And he said, I agree with you. And I said, well, wait a minute. You got power. He said, what do you mean? I said, you can change things. He came back to me and he said, I got a deal for you. I said, what's that? He said, if you get all your core curriculum, all your core credits, and you graduate from a graduate school, we will then give you your undergraduate degree. Great. That's a deal. I went to three years of college and then law school wouldn't let me in at University of Chicago, but business school would. So I went to a year of MBA 
and I'm sitting with the, the dean of students. And I said, this is nuts. Why do you make me go to two years of MBA if, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to go to law school? I was well-practiced at that time. And he said, what do you mean? I said, this was before the 3-1 programs. I said, let me go to law school and you can give me your MBA because I've done a year here. Came back. He said, it's a deal. So I went to one year of MBA and then I finally got to law school. When I graduated from law school, a third of my class had PhDs before they came to law school. So in the graduate, the little program, everybody listed Harvard, Yale, blah, blah. Mine was Nutrier High School because I had no degree. Everything was backwards. I would make one other comment about my undergraduate experience. The great part of it, truthfully, was I started a business. So a, a couple of friends and I decided... We wanted to start a business. We started a bistro. We got the chemistry room at night and we started this little bistro. And our purpose was to bankrupt the student union. We were unsuccessful in bankrupting the student union, but at least we all understood it was important to have a purpose for the little bistro that we were putting together. I wouldn't call it my academic career. I would call it perhaps my educational background. Well, I would say this, Tom, I never heard that before. And to me, that characterizes Tom Pritzker, because absolutely everything you do, you don't take it as a given. You always ask why, and then why can't we, why, why can't we do it, <laughs> do it better? So now I want to talk about one other thing that characterizes you. I found that most, if not all successful leaders, are characterized by intellectual curiosity. Now, right after you got married, you and your wife, Margot, went on quite a fascinating and daring trip when you crossed the Himalayas. And I can't imagine, I know you're very close to your dad, but I can't imagine that made him happy. Maybe it did. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so when I got out of law school, I first went and practiced law for a year at Katmushin. And then we had a problem at Hyatt the day I came back from my honeymoon, dad calls me and says, we got a problem at Hyatt. Either you or I have to move out to San Francisco tomorrow morning. Which one of us do you think is going to move out to San Francisco? So I moved out there. We were a public company and we had an SEC investigation going on. Remember Stanley Sporkin? It was a Sporkin special. And, and it was actually, Hank, it was a great experience. Dad basically threw me into it. I was 27 years old and I was dealing with a, a truthfully, a travesty. Uh, the SEC was investigating us and wouldn't tell us what it was about. So we moved Hyatt back from San Francisco to Chicago. So we had deeper control with it. Uh, we settled with the SEC. And once we, once we completed that settlement, I then raised my hand and said, okay, Remember, I want to take this sabbatical. So I moved out there, moved Hyatt back to Chicago, but I always wanted this sabbatical. And what we knew when we got to Kathmandu, what we knew was the phrase, we wanted a cultural adventure. And so we spent three months learning about the history of Tibet, and we want this cultural adventure. And that led us to meet what I'll call the, the expatriate community in Kathmandu. Think of it like Paris in the 50s. These were wildly interesting people. And if you take the top 1%, 
they were fantastically interesting. They were smart. They were adventurous. They had depth in whatever it is they were doing. And we learned. And for three months, we learned about history. We learned about art. We learned about culture. And once we got all that together, we were ready to go. There was one slight problem. The area we had targeted was illegal to be in. So Kathmandu is the capital of, of Nepal, and it sits in the foothills uh, just south of the Himalayas. And uh, it's an ancient culture. And it was one of the most exciting places a young person could be in the late 70s. So we go and where we want to go is a place that's illegal. We try everything to get permits and we cannot get, I pulled every string I could, couldn't get permits. And I looked at Margo and said, great, we're now free. We're going. That meant we had to skirt certain types of uh, police checkpoints and, and make our way into an area where there were, where it was only uh, local Tibetan culture. There was no Nepalis, there were no officials, there were no governments, there were no phones, there were no radios. And we lived a medieval life. So we walked 500 miles. We lived in this medieval environment. We had probably 15 yaks to carry our, our goods. And we lived, you know, we would send people ahead to buy food and then and then and scouts and had a number of great adventures. One of them was, or the end one was, they sent the army in to arrest us. And six advanced guys came into our camp. And we had we had a forestry guy with us in order to help with this. And we fed them and then they said you're here illegally. And there are 35 guys coming tomorrow to arrest you. Margot had 104 fever. We put her on the back of a yak. Because we had a bunch of natives with us, a bunch of Tibetans who lived in the area, they took us up behind a mountain. The police went across, across our path without seeing us. And then we took a very high altitude escape route. Um, and so that's probably more flavorful than most of the businessmen you and I know. Uh, <laughs> but that was, it was phenomenal. And uh, my dad, you're exactly right. My dad went nuts. And my kids grew up knowing that if they ever did something like that, I would shoot them before they got to O'Hare Airport. Because <laughs> I can't imagine the trauma my mom and dad went through. Well, you did find on one of your trips or that trip, it really a trove of some very special, uh, you know, artifacts and uh, cultural artifacts, which you then work to preserve. What I what I'd say is, it goes back to your comment about curiosity. As a result of this trip, Margot and I have spent the last forty years doing archaeological expeditions to West Tibet. We share that passion, so it's wonderful for our marriage. Our youngest son is a PhD from Oxford in the field, and we engage in scholarship. I write articles in the area, give lectures in the area. So it opened up a whole world for us that we never would have seen had we not had that first curiosity of 
How can we go on a cultural adventure? So now, Tom, you restructured and modernized Hyatt Hotels. And after its IPO in 2009, you transformed it into a public company. And it has more than a thousand hotels and properties all around the world. What has been the key to your approach to business, to your business success? What lessons are there for would-be entrepreneurs here? Okay. So you may be familiar with Conrad Hilton saying the only three things you got to get right in the hotel business are location, location, location. We had a global general managers meeting for Hyatt probably 15 years ago. And in my speech, I said, the Pritzker corollary is the only three things you got to get right in business are people, people, and people. And my experience and comments to entrepreneurs is it's all about the people. You can't foresee what's going to happen in the world. So if you got the right people, they're going to help you navigate that. And that's, that's been the overarching, I think, experience of success. So my problem was I had a slightly overachieving father and I needed to carve out my own space that I was responsible for. And so what I did was I started two or three companies from scratch and put in one case, a million dollars in another case, $2 million in. And I got very lucky. Why did I get one of them was a container leasing company. It's now the largest container leasing company in the world. Another one was a pharmaceutical company. Another one was in healthcare services, but that's not what's really relevant. What's really relevant is one of them was Ed, one of them was Jim, and one of them was Fred. And that was the secret to navigating all the challenges of putting together uh, a successful venture. So I would say people, 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 If I and I could articulate more, you know, the Marmon story, John Nichols came in. It was once I could recruit John Nichols from ITW, my job was done. He was a master and he did, he, he quadrupled our operating income in four and a half years with zero change in people. That was pure John. Historically, when Hyatt earned $100, we would decide, should we put that in biotech or should we put that in railroad cars? Because we were building net worth and, and we were successful at that. But it meant Hyatt didn't grow as fast as, let's say, Marriott, who was redeploying $100 in hotels. When the family fight happened, I knew we needed to take Hyatt public. So we needed to turn that aircraft carrier from a vehicle to build net worth to a great company, public company in the hospitality industry. And so that, that was the job that I undertook. So to do that, the first thing we had to do is pour all of our hotel assets into one entity, easier said than done. As you may know, we had a very complex environment. To give you a sense of that, we were filing 10 to 12,000 tax returns a year. So we poured all of it in, it took us two or three years, create what the world thinks of as Hyatt now. And then merge, we had Hyatt International and Hyatt US, very different cultures. We had to merge those two companies. I would say that was a five-year effort to really get that right. And then I had to build an independent board. 
And I didn't want that board to show up on day one. I wanted, I wanted to embrace them in our culture rather than them saying, this is how we do things. So I spent five years doing all of that. Once we completed that, all of that work, we needed a strategy that would produce quality growth, because as you know, in a public company, that's what you need. So we expanded our product line. We acquired a company from Blackstone that was in the franchise business and began to build what I would call comprehensive hospitality company. But if I made one good move, it was to have Mark Hoplomazian become CEO of Hyatt. By that time, I had an independent board. They looked at Mark and said, he knows nothing about the hotel business. Mark ran our family office, TPO, and was a mergers and acquisitions guy. But I knew Mark deeply, and I understood his empathy and his care and this sort of thing. Mark has now been CEO for something like 15 years, and the real evolution of Hyatt is to Mark's credit. I, it wouldn't have, if it was just me, never would have happened. Mark is the guy who did that. So that goes back to the people, people, people. Um, as you know, my core job is like private equity, as I had described. You know, Joe Gleberman, same thing. And then I found Joe who came out of Goldman and Joe has created something at TPO that that is a flywheel and it's wonderful to participate in it but it keep in every one of these and what we did at Hyatt and what we've done at TPO it all comes back to that people element. It's fascinating because unlike you I didn't start a lot of businesses and build them but during my career at Goldman Sachs I worked with business builders all over the world and uh, with successful CEOs. And to me, the one thing they all had in common, they had different skill sets, different strengths and weaknesses, but they all had the right people in the right seats, right? And if they didn't, you know, th they didn't succeed. And, and so I, I agree with you. Now, let me ask you another question. You've mentioned before when you talked to me, you know, your family food fight, this was messy and public. Talk a bit about any lessons you took away from that experience. What I would say is that I did learn a couple of things from, from the experience. When, when my dad passed away, uh, it all broke out. And, what, and, and I was very much the target of it because I was the trustee. I was the CEO. I had the keys to the kingdom. And what... What I ended up doing, and when I say I, it was, it was me and the team at TPO, was we designed a 10-year program to move us from creating net worth to creating liquidity. So if this cousin wanted out, they had a, an ability to monetize. If that one wanted to do something different, they could. And over those 10 years, I would say there are two things that I learned. First one is North Star, the importance of a North Star. The day after I understood that this was going to happen, I assembled our team and I said, guys, we have to craft our North Star. And our North Star had to do with values. 
It had to do with our relationships. It had to do with integrity. And we literally sat and talked about our North Star on that day. And I can't tell you how many times over those 10 years that one of us would raise it and say, wait a minute, we're facing a complicated judgment. What would our North Star tell you? And so first is that in complex situations, articulate, literally say the words of what is my North Star. The second important lesson is us human beings have intellectual components and we have emotional components. As business people, we tend to think all that matters is the intellectual. How, does, how do we structure this? How do we do that? That's not my learning from the family fight. I never understood this before. But I would say a significant percentage of the 11 were making their decision. The emotional component of their psyche was driving their decisions, not the economics. There were a number of them who would have taken worse economics in order to address some of the emotional needs they needed. And it's not that they're wrong. They're real human beings. And so what I would say, the lesson I learned is practice empathy. Empathy is a critical business skill set that we all should be thinking about as business people all the time. Put yourself in the shoes of the other person and, and think about how they might think about what you're talking about. And by practicing empathy, I believe you're a better business person and you're a better partner, you're a better negotiator. This is, this is, this is one of the big learnings from the family situation. You and I share that view because just like the key to success is people, all problems are essentially people problems also. And you don't solve people problems if you just lecture them. You've got to listen and you've got to figure out how to, to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And if you don't do that, and that's one of the big problems we have in Washington right today, we don't have compromise. So I'm going to now move right along because we've got a lot to cover. And early on, as we began this discussion, you talked a little bit about you know, the, you know, the, the integrated life and your goals. And so I want to go into that a little bit deeper. And so you've had, as we've just talked about a successful business career, you've had a broad range of other interests and activities. You don't just find some time for some outside philanthropic interests and hobbies, serving on a few outside boards. If you do something, you do it for real. So you fully integrate what looks to me like multiple careers. Talk about, you've, you've talked before about the, the multiple careers, but about your life objectives. What are your goals? What is your North Star? How do you think about business interests and everything else you do? Yeah, so I began to refer to it in my first answer. I want to move the needle. I want to I move the needle in any of the environments that I'm in. And I view the different activities as opportunities to move the needle. In commerce, we do this by building companies. As you mentioned, our business model is a bit different. It's hold for very long periods, partner with the management team, and build the company uh, over, over hopefully long periods of time to create value. And the way I think of that is, we're creating value for the customers 
and for our communities. And I actually, I think of profit as the result of creating value for your customers and for your communities, not the purpose itself. Um, I see philanthropy just as another vehicle to try and move the needle. But what I would say is both Margot and I and our philanthropy are very hands-on. We basically have a very thin staff. When I say a thin staff, it's somewhere between zero and a half of an FTE for everything we do. And what we've sort of decided is what we're going to do is give money where we're involved. And, and so again, what I want to do is um, move the needle through philanthropy. I've mentioned business. There are other examples. The other thing I would point to is I have more questions than answers. I'm better at listening than I am at talking. And I think that that has opened up wonderful ways to partner with people who are like-minded and want to move the needle. That makes great sense. Now, so this, you know, I refer to it as an integrated life. And, you know, I like that. So let's take some examples to make this come alive. So, Tom, we talked about the Hyatt footprint with a significant presence in Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. And that has made it possible and necessary for you to travel around the world representing your company and, by, by example, your country as you interact with political and business leaders internationally. And you and I have talked a lot about, you know, your learnings from that process. And, but you are also actively engaged with U.S. national security issues as chair of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or as Washington insiders call it, you know, the CSIS, because it's in Washington, D.C. So, Dart, what is the CSIS? How did you get there? And what are your objectives for that institution? So CSIS is a bipartisan think tank fo focused on national security. The way I got there was after I finished, I was chairman of the Art Institute for eight or nine years. And when I was done, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next in terms of giving back. And so I went around and talked to a bunch of friends and I ran into John Hamray, who was the president. And he said, oh, I got the answer here. Chair, do a couple of years on the board, then chair the place and partner with me. And I love John. I think John's a great human being. He goes back to find the right people. And so I became chairman of CSIS. And what I really did in the first part of uh, my chairmanship was apply the basic business learnings that I got from Hyatt and the other companies were involved in. So I basically said three pillars. One is we have to change the governance and modernize it, create a better board, committees, basically business 101. Then go and raise money. And then third was once we had done those two, not all at once, design a strategy for CSIS. So it took me maybe, I don't know, four years to get all of that done. And now where I really want to go to try and make a difference is I have a concept, and that is 
During the Cold War, national security focused on the geopolitical world, and that basically meant diplomacy and military, and Washington was great at that, and they have lots of muscle memory. But the business world, you and me, honestly didn't need to deal with us because American business was dominant during the Cold War. That, that world is over. And now we've got global competition. We've got China as a very able competitor. And so what we now need to do is create some bridges between the private sector and the policymakers in Washington, because I think that economic success needs to be at the core of our national security not just to compete with China, but to compete in a globalized world. So that's sort of right at the moment, that is, if I could make a contribution to national security, it would be in that area. And that's going to be extremely important. And like most things that are worthwhile, it's not going to be easy because so many of the national security experts Although they may mouth the words, they don't really understand the point that uh, our national security is rooted in our economic security and economic success. And it's hard to have outstanding global economic success and leadership without having successful global companies headquartered in the United States that compete, can compete around the world and are the, are the window through which most of the rest of the world looks at the, at the US. But that's, that's hard, hard to do. And you know the other thing that isn't easy is all organizations, even the best ones, need to be updated to meet the needs of the modern world or, or, or they lose their relevance. And it, it's sometimes hard to change the culture and update the strongest institutions with the strongest culture. Yeah. So it, it's a, it, it's an interesting. So, so now you mentioned China. So you and I share a common interest in China, but you've sure gone a lot deeper into history and culture than I have. I, I didn't go to Kathmandu. I wasn't in China in the really early years. Talk about your early visits to China. What were some of the formative lessons you learned about Chinese history and culture, and how do they relate to doing business in China today? And, and then let's talk a little bit after that about what you see as the trajectory for U.S.-China relations, you know, looking in. in yeah. So what I would say is I, I've been very fortunate in too many different ways. I got to go to China in 1976 while Mao was still alive. And so I saw the tail end of the Cultural Revolution and, and this remarkable culture of, of sort of sticking to the party line. Everybody wore the same outfits. Everybody was on bicycles. And whether you asked a tricky question in Guangzhou or Hunan or Beijing, you got precisely the same answer. And I was always fascinated by that. How do you go doing that. So I kept going back to China, learned a fair bit about Chinese history because of my interest in Tibetan history. You can't learn one without the other. But what I would say is my, my exposure to China has been 
through all of the things we've talked about, through business. I have a lot of business friends there, through scholarship, through the, through the archaeological expeditions. Uh, I'm, as you mentioned, a uh, adjunct professor of history at Sichuan University, and then with policymakers through CSIS. So I get these different streams within China um, that, that have really given me, I think, I don't, I don't see myself as an expert in China, by the way. For sure, I don't. I don't speak the language. And I, I have hypotheses, is what I, say, I would say, not necessarily convictions. I'll, I'll tell you, if anybody that has more than a hypothesis about China and says they're a China expert, by definition, aren't Chinese experts. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. That's probably right. What I do get is three dimensions, right? I get to talk to the culture people about policy and that sort of thing. And, and what I would say is because I have those different interests, it changes the conversation I have in China with Chinese because they sort of see me, you know, in the Mandarin, in the traditional Mandarin way, you studied several, you were very cultured. You were not just an elite because you were a senior business person. You had to have history. You had to have culture. You had to know music. And so I think they see me as, as respectful of what they've accomplished, which I am. And if I went back to empathy, uh, you know, put yourself in their shoes, I think I try and exercise that empathy, even though I disagree with a number of tenants of uh, current China. Okay, I can disagree, but I want to put myself in their shoes and say, why is it that they have these principles, these tenants, that sort of thing? Two things jump out at me uh, when I study Chinese history and the challenge of China and where we're going in Sino-US relations. First is China has extremely different history, values, and culture than we do. And, and the Western world has some commonality, regardless of which part of the Western world. The Chinese culture, history, and values are profoundly different. Their system reflects their history and their culture and their values. And to me, that is the biggest challenge in developing a workable set of Sino-US uh, relations. We come to the problem from a di very different place than they do. I happened to be in a meeting with Xi Jinping and I made that comment to him and he pointed at me and he said, you're exactly right. He said, in the Western world, in the Bible says, if someone slaps you in the face, you turn the other cheek. In our world, if someone slaps you in the cheek, you slap them back because it's a matter of behavior. And so that to me is the single biggest problem is these cultural differences. The second thing I would say is China has identified economics as the core competitive, they have, competitive advantage they have over us. We're going to need to rise to that challenge as we discussed. Uh, with policies that embed commercial success as a priority of our national policy and our national security. 
Um, as one example, I would give, because it's very current now, is a thoughtful approach to supply chain. Supply chain is a national security issue. We saw it in COVID. We couldn't get masks. We couldn't get even some pharmaceuticals. And so we need to embed that in national security, but it's not the policy guys in Washington who understand their supply chains. It's the business people who understand their supply chains. And so while I recognize that we as a country have competing priorities, none of those priorities are gonna be solved or even effectively managed unless we have a strong economic core, economic growth at the core of our country. You know, Tom, you said a couple of things very profound, but one point I make all the time, if you see China as a, a strategic competitor, as I think both of us do, you know, we have some common interests and we have areas where we're very competitive or in, you know, where, where there's conflict. So the key is to how do we find the political room to work on things where, 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 where it's in both of our interests to do so while we're competing in others. And when you have a strategic competitor, it really helps to understand them and know what's driving them. It's, it comes back to your empathy in, in business. You know, you, you know, so you know your competitor. And if, if you're going to win, you, you better know it. And then... You know, the supply chain resonated with me because I see so much of what comes out of Washington, or some of it, comes out. They diagnose the problem, and then they they look and say, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to compete with China by hurting them, and they do things that are going to hurt us, right? So trying to cut China yeah. off from key markets may end up, you know, disrupting supply chains. And I'd like to talk about philanthropy because I think your approach there, and you talked a bit about you and Margot, you, you're hands-on, uh, you don't have a lot of staff, you want to be very involved, you want to make a difference, and so on. So I, I'd like you to tell us about an example. And the one of one of your recent initiatives, which, which I'm very impressed by, is something where you worked with Bob Zimmer, who we've both got a very high regard for Bob you know, the, the outgoing president or the, the former president of the University of Chicago. And you worked with Bob to conceptualize and build the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering. So tell us about that. Okay, that was, Hank, that was one of the great journeys of my life. Um, I was at, a, Bob came in back to Chicago as president. I was at a cocktail party with him. I don't know what you say to the president of the university. So I said, what are you working on? He said, I want to start an Institute of Molecular Engineering. And I laughed. He said, why are you laughing? I said, that's the camel's nose in the tent. He said, what do you mean? I said, we need to evolve the University of Chicago and rebalance it to have more activity in translational sciences. Engineering at the core is translational. And by having molecular engineering, you're going to begin to evolve our culture and, and I think it's time to do that because my belief is universities have a responsibility to contribute to society and, and solve some of the problems. So he, he said, completely right. Please don't tell anybody because I got a lot of work to do. Called him a couple of weeks later and said, we'll finance it. 
He said, what are you going to finance? I said, this thing, this molecular engineering. He said, I don't have anything. I said, we'll still finance it. He said, I don't know if development will let you finance something if we don't have a PowerPoint. We laughed about it. And I said, look, we're there. We will put the money in. You tell us what, what you want us to do first and named a figure and said, let's start there. And from that, Bob and I became deep partners in designing what is now the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering. Started as an institute, became a school. And both of us felt that translational was important and collaborations. So the school was designed not around disciplines, molecular, cellular biology, or evolutionary biology. It was designed around themes. So think of immunology, using nanoparticles to help within uh, uh, immunology. Well, then you can aggregate people who are passionate about that topic. And one of them's a chemist and another a biologist, physicist. And so by organizing it around themes, it's how you think about organizing a business. You want people working together. And so we did this. There were obviously lots of other people. But as I went and advocated to our foundation, I said, the core reason we should do this is because of Bob Zimmer. We got a great leader. We got a great idea. And let's back that. And that really led Bob and I partnered really for 10 years to put this all together, to evolve it from a white sheet of paper to uh, a school of molecular engineering. Great experience. Now explain, because for those that don't spend as much time in academia, you know, explain the, the difference, because there's a big difference. I'm not, I'm not downplaying institutes. So I found it in chair a couple of institutes but there's a big difference between an institute and a school. How did you get Bob in Chicago to make that transition? Uh, that's a great one. So I didn't understand it either. And Bob and I would have lunch once a quarter. And he, shorthand version, would say, give me more money and here's what I'll do for you. And we just, we have a very close relationship. So I kept saying to him, you're mispricing what you're willing to do for me. And you're asking for way more money than you do of other people. So you're, you're mispriced it. This, we go on for a year and a half like this. And then I finally looked at Bob. I said, Bob, everybody thinks you're brilliant. You don't understand. If you price something at a certain level and nobody's buying, you either have to lower the price or you have to raise the quality of the goods. That's what we learned at University of Chicago. And he laughed. He said, I can do that. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to improve the quality. I'm going to make it a school. <laughs> and I said, help me understand that. And, and it's a huge difference. It's degree granting. It, we have undergraduate programs. We have graduate programs. It, it is not it's a core element of the university structure is what I would say by being a school. And so not just stature wise, but the ability to grant degrees is, is a feature that in the university world uh, is, is quite different. It, it sure is. And that's a, a fascinating story. So now lastly, the last question here, with all of the challenges we're facing in the U.S. and in the world today, what advice do you give to young people 
embarking on their careers. Okay, I hate the idea that I'm so old that I have to have wisdom for all of them, but I do. I've learned a lot through my multiple experiences. And what I would say is, I found it to be of great benefit to establish a purpose for my life and to tie my decisions to that purpose. It meant I'm not wandering. I can actually say this is my purpose. And as I do things, I can. I have that context to tie it into. So first one would be try and identify a purpose for your life. Um, second is you want to play in an area of scarcity. And the biggest area of scarcity, at least in, in the whole world, in my view, is good judgment. So now the question is, how do you develop good judgment? And my concept is, it's the volume of experiences that you have. I don't care what the experience is. I don't care whether it's a good experience, a bad experience, smart, dumb. It doesn't matter. Just get a, a boatload of experiences and that will help develop your judgment. And you're then playing in a scarce resource if you can do that. Um, and the third thing I'd say, I'm a Chicagoan, I'd go back to Daniel Burnham and I'd say, make no small plans. They don't have any magic and they don't stir men's blood. And the reason I would do that is not lofty ideals. I think two things. One is it's a lot more fun. It's a more fun life than if you're, if you're a mesh in a very small world. So make big plans for that reason. And the other is if you make big plans, you're no longer constrained. You will find yourself lying in bed and thinking about crazy ideas. And so that concept of big plans removes restraints. So those would be my comments, my thoughts. Um, that, you, know, you and I agree on so many things. Now, I didn't start with a life purpose. It just evolved. But I, it's sure the one thing I've seen, I, I think all great leaders do what I call is defining the job expansively, right? Defining the job expansively. And I could identify that in someone as they started their career and all the way through, those who define the job expansively. And of course, judgment is a key. And I think you mentioning the best way to get that is through life, life experiences. Yeah, it used yep. to drive me crazy. If someone had terrible judgment, really bad judgment, you couldn't say you've got bad judgment because the definition of bad judgment, <laughs> you think you've got good judgment, right? So, exactly, exactly. So, so the only way they can get this is really through life experiences, through learning and growing. So I really agree with you. Tom, listen, this has been great. You've packed a lot into this interview and I, I, I thank you a lot. Hank, I just want to say thank you for doing this, but more importantly, thank you for being such a good friend. You've actually, I've learned a huge amount from you uh, just from the time we've spent together. So I really do want to tell you, I appreciate that. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.